So we're getting in, we're starting the book of Romans this morning, and I asked Kim to read the intro to Romans. Where's that microphone? There it is. The trusty microphone. One through seventeen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was, a, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to, be, to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thanks, Kim. Your microphone, sir. <laughs> so I am really, really, maybe way too pumped to be doing starting this. Uh, I've wanted to preach Romans. I mean, I think every preacher wants to preach Romans. Um, Martin Luther called it the crowning glory of the New Testament. Um, he had a habit of saying he liked some books better than others, so I'm not suggesting that you, <laughs> you feel that way necessarily, but it really, for him, is what made him understand the grace of God, and it started the Protestant Reformation. Um, so it's historically pretty significant in that way. But it's, it's an amazing book. And we're going to, I'm going to, kind of how I'm going to do it is a little differently. This morning what I want to do is I'm going to preach the entire book. Not every word, every verse. So take a deep breath. I'm just going to go hit the high points of the whole book. And then next week we'll go back to the beginning and take our time through it. Okay. Um, so the pace is going to vary. The first chapter we're going to take a lot of time with because it opens several cans of worms that maybe weren't as much of a can of worms 30 years ago, but now are a big can of worms. So we're going to take our time. It's going to take a few weeks in chapter one, and you might be going, man, if it's 
taken you like four weeks to get through chapter one. How long is this going to take? Um, other parts will go much quicker. Um, I'm not going to do the John Piper thing where he took eight years to do Romans. Yeah, that's, that's real. That happened. Um, and I know one guy who's actually listened to every one of those sermons. Um, God bless you, Matt. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so don't, you know, we're just, we're going to take our time, but this morning I'm going to hit the whole book. Um, so let me give you some background about Romans so you kind of have some context because that's also going to be pretty important as we get into the weeds a little further along, okay? Um, it was written by Paul, obviously, she just read, he puts his name right at the beginning, around A.D. 55 or 57, um, depending on how you date it. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. That's why we call it Romans. It's okay to laugh. I'm not talk- I know you're not dumb. I know you knew that already. Uh, but what's interesting here is Paul has not been to Rome. And we actually don't have any record of any apostle going to Rome to plant a church. So the theory is, and most people agree that this is true, is that this church started with some Christians who were at Pentecost when Peter comes out and he made his sermon and the Holy Spirit fell and 2,000 plus people got saved and then some of those lived in Rome and went back to Rome and he had this church. So they have not yet had an apostle come and teach them like what is the gospel. They've picked it up from other places. So this is a really interesting time in history because this has, we're used to this happening. People get saved and there's a church. But at this point in history, this was not normal. And so Paul is writing saying, I'm going to come there and visit on my way to Spain, and I'm kind of introducing myself. And so he's writing in this way that's very, he's covering all his bases. He's, not, he's making no assumptions about what they understand, which is one of the reasons why you can take Romans and get the entire story of the gospel from start to finish, and it's a complete package, um, which is fun. It's very helpful to us because of that. Um, Paul will eventually find his way to Rome, but will be imprisoned twice and eventually martyred by Nero there in 66 AD. So he will get there, but it's not a good time. By the time he gets there, things have gone. He's imprisoned twice on a second imprisonment. We think probably that's when he died. He was probably one of the people that Nero put on a pike and set on fire so that he could light up the palace at night. All right? That's probably, we don't know for sure, but that's probably what happened to Paul. Um, by the time he gets this, there's a lot of irony, a tragic irony here that he's writing to the place where he's probably going to die one day. Persecution at this time was mostly social and intellectual, mostly came from the Jews centered around Jerusalem and the temple there. It was hard to live in Jerusalem as a Christian at this time. In fact, Paul is on a journey collecting a big collection to bring to Jerusalem to help them because of their suffering, because they're having a hard time even living and buying things because they're Christians. By the time Paul's death in 66, persecution would intensify to the physical persecution, like I mentioned about Nero. That violence in 66 would spur a revolt from Israel, which would cause Rome to then destroy the temple and kill a bunch of people in a horrible bloodbath, which began this spread of the gospel around the world. So Romans is being written right at the cusp of massive persecution and massive change in the church. This represents Paul's understanding of the gospel in its complete form. If you want to know all of Paul's, the way he looks at the world, that Romans is probably the first place to stop. 
the population of Rome in this church is also interesting. It's why we have a large section dealing with Jews and Gentiles, and we'll, we'll get to that eventually, um, because the church there was filled with Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles just means everybody other than Jews, right? <laughs> a, it, which really in this case means Greeks and Romans. So imagine for a second this religion that's been a Jewish thing in this tiny little place in the world, and you got big, fancy Rome. Rome is like the big center of the world at the time. It's the big city. And all of a sudden, and the Jews have thought of themselves as kind of the owners of this religion. And then Jesus comes, and he changes things, and they start following Christ. But Jesus was a Jew, right? He was not a white American, right? He was a Jew. And then Jesus dies, and he raises, and then he goes away, and then this thing starts to spread, and it spreads to Rome. And all of a sudden, you have this mixture of people who don't have the same background as the Jews, the same understanding, the same way of looking at the world, who looks at the world very differently, and they've all been crammed together in one place, not that different from us, all kinds of people from different backgrounds and different opinions, and Paul's writing to say, here's the through line, here's the center point, here's the anchor for all of you to hold on to, and that is the gospel. So the main thing we read, or Kim read, in verse 16 to 17, I want to read it. This sets the tone and the theme for the whole letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith, depending on how you translate it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the word gospel simply means good news. I found this great definition of that word. Um, it says this, quote, in a number of languages, the expression the gospel or the good news must be rendered by a phrase, for example, news that makes one happy. Isn't that nice? Or information that causes one joy. Or words that bring smiles. I like, that's my favorite. Words that bring smiles. Or a message that causes the heart to be sweet. Isn't that fun? English can be boring sometimes. That's what the word gospel means. It's not, we tend to kind of put all this kind of religious seriousness around that word. And it is a serious thing. But that's not what the word means. It means this happy thing. Somebody told you something and it just made you smile. It made your heart feel sweet. It made you happy. And the happiness showed on your face. Right? You're not happy if it doesn't show on your face, by the way. It's a lie. You're not happy. But this is news that goes, ah, it makes you smile. Verse 17 says that this good news reveals the righteousness of God. That phrase has been argued about quite a bit. Um, books have been written. Books against other books have been written on that phrase. I am not going to bore you with that. But here's the summary. One meaning could be righteousness is an attribute of God, meaning God is complete in his righteousness. Another might be righteousness is something God does, meaning God is setting all things right. He's putting everything together. He's making everything right. Or third, it might be righteousness is something that God is giving to humanity. It's like his, it's a thing that he says, here, this is yours. And I don't see the problem here. <laughs> Isn't it all three? It's all three, okay? all three things. And we're going to see this. Paul unpacks this one phrase, the righteousness of God being revealed throughout the whole book. And all of it is good news. And all of it should make us smile. I mean, don't you want to smile at church? 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to smile. So we gain access to this righteousness through faith, he says, for now this simply means believing God. That's what he means. Just believe God. That's all it takes. That's Abraham, believe God. That's all you got to do. Either God's being true or he's false. Either you believe him or you don't believe him. All right, so let's, let's blast off through Romans, start to finish. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. That good news that makes you smile reveals the righteousness of God, but the wrath of God, it says, is revealed against ungodliness, which began in mankind by knowing God but rejecting him. The idea that some people have an excuse because they don't know God exists is a lie. He says, everybody, God made creation in such a way that you can look at it. Anybody can look at it and see that there's a God. That might not lead you to certain theological precepts that are found in Scripture, but at the baseline, every single human being on the planet can look at the stars at night and the sunrise in the morning and the trees and the grass and the crazy animals we have on this planet and go, there's a God. Everyone has perceived it. No one can say that they did not know that God is God. God has revealed himself in creation, and every single human being will stand before God accountable to that revelation. It will not be just, what did you do or not do? What were the good things you did, the bad things you did? It will be, I revealed myself to you. What did you do with that information? Did you seek me or did you reject me chapters two and three go on to show that not only is there no excuse but everyone has rejected god see like the it's like being corralled and it gets tighter and tighter first it's i've revealed myself to everybody and then it's so nobody has an excuse and then he says but no one is righteous well, I thought I was doing all right. I believe there's a God, and I'm a good person. Neither Jew or Gentile, which, like I said before, that's just everybody on the planet, okay, have justified themselves or will ever justify themselves. Let's read it. Romans 3, 9 to 12 says, second half of verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I looked that up in the Greek and it means not even one. There is nobody. Think about it for a second. That, in case you're confused, that includes you. The no one includes you. Right now, sitting in your seat, no one is righteous. Yeah, but I, I, do, I do some good stuff, man. Like, I'm not as bad 
as my neighbor who's a real jerk. And he's a jerk to me, but I'm nice to him. I do some good stuff. My kids are well-behaved. <clears throat> they wear sweater vests in the winter. You know, they brush their teeth. They're good little boys and girls. I'm a good dad, or I'm a good mom, or I'm a good employee. I'm a good son. I'm a good this, that, and the other. It can't be <clears throat> that I am completely unrighteous and without excuse. And this may be, I think, the greatest cliffhanger in history when Paul is basically saying it's impossible for you to have peace with God and to enter heaven. Impossible. There is only one human being who it has ever been possible to enter into heaven, and it ain't you. It's Jesus. He's the only person in all of time and in all of the future for whom it is possible to enter heaven. For every single other person, it is completely impossible. <clears throat> now, it's real easy at this point to just keep reading and find out the answer to that problem. But I think we have a problem as American Christians. We are addicted to our comfort and our self-reliance. And you need to pause here for a second and let the weight of this sit on you that your righteousness is so not enough that it's not worth mentioning to get you into the good graces of God, to get you past his holiness, to have a relationship with him. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite illustrations of this, famously talked about a stone, and you are the stone. Heavy, imagine like a two-ton rock, and it is hanging over the open maw of hell raging, the flames reaching up to grab you and pull you right in, and you can feel the heat of it, and you are falling from the sky towards that. And the only thing connecting you to the hand of God is your righteousness. And it is like the thin, like a gossamer thread, like a spider web between you and the hand of God holding it, and you are falling, tumbling down this two-ton stone. All of your righteousness in this thread and when you reach the end of that thread over hell, it will be like it's not even there. It will snap, and you won't even feel a tug on the velocity of that stone falling, and you go straight into hell. That's your righteousness. Pile up all your goodness, all your good works, all the things you're proud of about yourself, and that's what it amounts to in regards to your relationship with God. It is impossible for you to enter heaven. And that's what Paul does. He sets you up. And he says, this is the truth. Not, and he's saying this to people, some of which the Jews feel, well, we're the chosen people. We've been, you know, I mean, we had, we've had some bumps in the road. A lot of idolatry. We just got done with First and Second Kings last year. Maybe they shouldn't be so proud of themselves. But... We're at least the chosen people. We have the law. Moses came and he get, told us what God expects. We have the law. We're the chosen ones. It, don't you think we're at least like a couple of steps? Isn't our string a little heavier and stronger than everyone else's at least? And Paul is saying, no, it's not. Everybody's in the same boat. 
everybody is tumbling and falling. There's only one man that's ever been qualified. Another way to look at it is sin is the murderer, the law is the murder weapon, and the bullet has already left the barrel at your head. You can't dodge it. It's coming. So you feel a little, this doesn't sound like good news, man. Where's the smiley bits? All right, the smiley bits are next. Romans 3 comes right after this section. I feel like there should be a blank page in Romans right here. Make you sit with that for a second and feel a little nervous. Like feel the heat of hell just a little bit and then go to the next chapter. So Romans 3, 21 through 24 says, But now, the best news there could be is there is a but after all of that. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, that's the, that is always great stuff after the buts and the ands. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is not in you. It is in Christ Jesus. It is not in your good works. It is not in your good ideas. It is not in your self-reliance or your hard work. It's found only in Christ Jesus, and that's it. He is the only one that gets in. And if you want to get in to peace with God and to rest with God, you got to be in Christ Jesus. You don't walk in next to him. You don't walk in behind him. You will have to be in him. You have to look like him or else you don't get in. Where there was no way, Jesus made a way. It was impossible. You need to understand that it is impossible for you to enter heaven. It is a miracle what Jesus has done for you. There was no way and he made a way for you. It's not that there was a chance and you failed the chance. It was impossible for you. This is not just a story of humanity. This is your story. I want you to feel the weight of this this morning. This is Paul's talking in, in broad terms about all of humanity, what all of humanity has done, and that's true and that's good, but you need to understand you're a part of that group. This is my story. Before you were redeemed, you were utterly condemned, and, but now for those of you that believe, you are fully justified as a gift through Jesus Christ. This is why we go and preach the gospel. Because if you're not in Christ Jesus, you're just tumbling. You're just falling. And whatever hope you think you have is a lie. There is no hope. It is impossible without Jesus. Then he says in chapter 5, 1 through 8, 39, 3, yeah, verse 39, so 5 through 8, dives deeper into what this means for us. He says, not only are we legally justified before God, but we have peace with God. The news gets better. So not only did you get, get snatched out of the air as you tumbled towards hell and put in the palm of the hand of Jesus and say, okay, now you don't have to go there. Clean slate for you, my friend. You're like, that's great news. But then he says, let me one-up you a little bit. This is the, the and after the gospel, which is you get peace with God. We've been united with Christ in his death, united with Christ in his resurrection. We're dead to sin and alive to God. You have been recreated into holiness 
And your old sin-bound self is dead in the grave. We are heirs of heaven with Christ. Christ's reward is now your reward. What did Jesus win for himself when he came and suffered and died and went back to be with God? He won everything. He was the, the sonship that Jesus has with the Father is now yours. What? It's not just about escaping eternal death and hell. It's about being revived and recreated to be like him and to sit at his table in his spot at the table. Romans 8, 1 through 4, it's a good sample. The classic, this one's been on a lot of t-shirts, a lot of bumper stickers. There is therefore now no condemnation. Look the word up, no, and it means none. Just like there's no, like no one is righteous, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. You should underline all the times you see in your Bible, in Christ or of Christ. It lets you know where it is. Where is all of this located? It is never, ever in you. It is in Christ. It's impossible for you to not be condemned. But in Christ, you get his no condemnation. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, meaning as a, as a human being, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Where Jesus goes, you go. And what he gets, you get. The life, the reward, the peace, the relationship with the Father, all of that you get. Chapters 9 through 11 focus on what this means for Israel and that everyone must come through the same door of faith in Jesus. Nobody bypasses Jesus on the way to God. Nobody sneaks around the door. No one says, you know, I'm an exception to this no one is righteous thing. You know, I have, I have a different credential other than Jesus that should allow me to bypass this whole situation and get in without him. I'm special. I was born in the right place or I have the right parents or I had the right religion or I went to the right church or I read the right Bible or I, read, or I did all the right things. Therefore, this whole Jesus thing, I get to go around. And Paul says, no, everybody comes to the same door. Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, does not matter. We all, if you're proud of your accomplishments, you have to humble yourself. If you're down on the floor and think you're nothing and a worm, you have to come up. He lifts you up out of the dust and he says, I'm giving you myself. Peter said, we could partake in the divinity of God. What in the world? You partake, somehow you get a taste of Jesus in a way that it's like tasting the divine. You're not a god, but you get to taste it. What in the world? That's the gospel. Nine, verses 9 through 13 of chapter 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's, if you want to know how to become a Christian, there's the shortest way. 
the most succinct version of that. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to drop like a rock into hell. You can be in him. Yeah, there's no way, but Jesus made a way. No one can have peace with God by any other means but Christ. The world we live in right now does not agree with this. You know, there's just, you know, I'm just a spiritual person. I'm not a Christian. I don't go to church. I don't do that. I'm not into institutionalized religion. But it's, I just make my own way. And I, I read some of the Koran. I'm kind of into some of the Hindu stuff. I dabble. You know, I just dabble. It's like a smorgasbord of religion. I got some crystals, you know. I've got some, I don't know, what's the, the oils that people are using now? Essential oils. I know some of y'all are into essential oils. I'm not picking on you. It's fine, you know. You want to smell like mint all the time. It's cool, whatever. But you see, what I mean? there's this kind of, I don't like the idea that there's just one way. That seems unfair. I want to kind of make my own way, man. I got to find myself. I got to be my own person. I got to look within myself and discover my way to God. My path. It's all about the journey. You know, doesn't all this sound familiar to you? And here comes God, and he says, I've got one way. Well, there's two roads, right? That's what Jesus said. There's the, the skinny road, the hard road, and there's the wide road. You know what that means is hell accepts everyone. It, hell takes all comers. It's, a, it's non-exclusive. You can take whatever path you want. Whatever way you please, it's wide open. There's no membership fee. There's no credentials required. You can come. Anyone who wants to come can come. And then heaven is exclusive. God says you come through Jesus or you don't come at all. And we don't like that. We don't like it. We like to think at the very least I can contribute to the situation. So when he says, look, there's no way, it's impossible, the only way is through Jesus, even then this was controversial. It's really what started the persecution in Rome. They did not like the fact that they were only into one God. They called them atheists. You know, Christians were the first atheists? Let that get get in your head. Because they didn't worship the emperor. And they couldn't understand from their worldview why these crazy Christians were just worshiping this one God and following him who was a guy who just got killed on a cross. He said, you guys are atheists. You don't believe anything we believe. Hell accepts everyone and heaven is exclusive. But it is wide open to those who believe in Jesus, who just believe him at his word. Then chapters 12 through 15 is Paul's exposition of what he's explained up to that point. It's how we should live in light of the gospel. This is, you know, you, this is not just theory. It actually has an impact on how you live and how you treat each other. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The order of this in Paul's discussions, part of why I wanted to do the whole book in one sermon, is the order of things is very important. Doing follows being. Action follows identity. What we do flows from who we are in Christ, not the other way around. And this is not the Jewish way of thought, and it is not the Roman and Greek way of thought. To this day, the big conflict between kind of traditional practicing Jews and Jesus and what he taught is they just believe only matters what you do. If you're nice to people and you're a good person, that's all that God is concerned with. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. I look on the heart first. And he twists the law up, in a, up on its head and says, it's not just about whether or not you commit adultery externally, it's whether or not you commit it in your heart. It's not just about whether or not you commit murder externally, it's about whether or not you commit murder in your heart. God looks on the heart. Paul follows this idea by saying it's who you are in Christ, it's your identity in him, your connection with Christ, and then from that comes all the good stuff that you do. And if you flip that around, you're in serious trouble. These are hard commands, and it's also good news because Jesus does not give us a fake holiness. He doesn't say you're holy, but I can't, we, between us, we know you're not. He doesn't say you're in Christ, but you know, really, you're not. You just look like it. The holiness that's given to us by Jesus is real. You, and it comes out of him in you and you in him. Your peace with God is not a truce that's not going to last. It's not like a ceasefire. They say, look, while you get your act together, I won't kill you and send you to hell. But you better get on it. Get on it, cotton. Time's a-wasting. Hell is real and it's forever, right? That's not what God does. He says, you have peace with God forever. He declares the end from the beginning. It's weird. He says, you are because I say you are, and you're going to become what I say you are. It's a promise from him. You will and you are holy. That's hard for me. Just be honest with you. I don't always feel particularly holy. But he says I am. It's what he says about me. If I wasn't, I'd have no chance. Because <laughs> it's impossible for me to enter heaven by myself. So doing always follows being. We are becoming what we already are. So whatever goodness you believe you possess is of no use, of no contribution to your peace with God. And I mean all your best, your best moments. You can shine that up, polish it, put a bow on it, and bring it to God when you die. And you're going to feel ridiculous because you're going to see how holy he is and how glorious he is. And you're going to see his face and you won't be able to look at him because he'll be so holy and so glorious and so radiant. And you will look down at all of your rags of righteousness and you will say, this stinks. What was I thinking bringing this in here? <laughs> and you will lay it down and say, I'll take Jesus' righteousness 
and his holiness because he looks like you. And that's where I am. I'm in him. He said I could come. I'm here on his invitation, not on my own. You come to the party with nothing but what disqualifies you for entry. And it's only your unity with Christ that gains you entry and keeps you there eternally. This should make us grateful and joyful and radically committed to calling others into that. Whatever else you think your life is about, that's number one. Because we live in a world that is hurtling as fast as they, the pedal is to the metal and the car is pointed towards hell. They are going as fast as they can. Why isn't this vehicle going faster towards hell? I'm grumpy because it's not moving fast enough. They are hellbound and intent on going there. And we stand here as the church with the only way. So if no one tells them, how do they know? If no one calls them in and say, hey, this is good news. Why are Christians so grumpy when they talk about the world? Why are we so, it's like we're sour and we're grumpy out there. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, you're carried around the rescue. You got it in your hands. Like, you should be a little excited. Hey, guys, I got the answer. Look, Jesus made a way. You can't escape without him. Jesus made a way. Look what he's done for me. Not only did he justify me, but he gave me peace with God, and then he unified me with Christ. He gave me relationship with a holy God, and he gave me gifts and a purpose and a calling. He gave me life. He is everything to me. There is nothing else that matters in this life. And here, let me, let, all you have to do is repent and believe. So let's go. That's what our life is about. Whatever hope you think you have outside of that is a lie. It's based on something that ultimately is going to kill you. It's like somebody who says, no, no, it's fine. It's a little warm, but it's not so bad. Let's go. They're lying to you. So I, I think we need to, I'd like to pray for us, but then I think personally the right response to this is to worship God. Because where there was no way, he made a way. But I also want to pray that God would stir us not only to worship, but stir us to be a joyful bringer of good news to the world. Not a sour, sad, grumpy bringer of good news to the world. So why don't we stand up together and we'll pray. If you can stand, please feel free. You all right back there? <laughs> God, we're so grateful for just all you've done that you have, you opened the door for us. You made a way where there wasn't one. And you have brought us in to your family. You've seated us at your table. 
poured out your love and your mercy on us. You feed us every day. And we have the same access to you that Jesus has. It's just too hard to fathom. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to put joy in our hearts over this and that you would put a smile on our face. That whatever else we're concerned about, whatever else our life is about, whatever other things are going on that take our attention and our zeal, God, would you put our zeal in this, that we would love you with everything that we have and that we would look to the world with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts and call others into this life that we would be snatching people off that wide road, the easy road, onto the narrow road with us that leads to joy. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities, even today and this week, that we would encounter people who are seeking you, who have open hearts. God, that you would use all the spiritual gifts in this church, every single one, to draw people in, God, that it would be like a beacon, what you call the city on the hill. God, a, a lighthouse in the storm for people to come to and find rescue and relief. God, use us this way that we would not just be holding this good news to ourselves and enjoying it, but we would spread that happy word to others. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to help us, help us with that. Reactivate our gifts, reactivate our faith as we worship right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.